Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I don't understand. Why would you do that? I had to make sure that he was okay. Did you touch anything? No. Did you touch no, anything? No, it was less than a minute. A second is all it takes. I'm sorry. Why would you risk your life for a total stranger? I'm okay. What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Represent, and I'm your host, Aisha Harris. On today's show, you'll hear a conversation I had with Stella McGee, the Black female director behind the big screen adaptation of the young adult bestseller Everything Everything, starring Amanda Stenberg and out in theaters now. But first, we're going to dive into some Hollywood news that has dominated this week's headlines, the record-breaking opening weekend box office of Wonder Woman. For obvious reasons, the success of this film is a huge deal, and here to break it all down with me today is a writer I've admired for years now, Alyssa Rosenberg, who covers politics and culture at The Washington Post. Welcome to the show, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me. And like I was saying before we got on, it's a mutual admiration society. I'm so excited to be here with you. Yeah. So I I thought this would be a perfect way to to get you on the show uh, to discuss this. And real quick, I should note for all of our listeners that we are recording this on Monday. So by the time you listen to this episode, which will be released on Friday, Wonder Woman will have made even more money, I'm sure. <laughs> but let's uh, let's first actually just get into the stats a bit just to sort of set up how significant this is. Um, so the movie as of today, Monday, has made approximately $100.5 million domestic and $122.5 million abroad. So this is the first uh, film directed by a woman that has done this. It's beaten out Sam Taylor Johnson's Fifty Shades of Grey, which had the highest opening before at $85 million, and Catherine Hardwick's Twilight, which was about $69.6 million. Uh, so huge deal in the sense that this is a woman director. This has never happened before. And it's also a big deal because it's also not only beat those out, but it also beats out the first Iron Man movie uh, for an opening. That movie opened at around $100 million, uh, $99 million. So this is a huge deal. Alyssa, I get the sense, I know there was a post that went up this morning, actually, that you wrote uh, for The Washington Post about Wonder Woman and how you appreciated it. So you clearly like the film. Uh, How do you feel about the fact that this is doing so well? I mean, I'm delighted. I'm also cautiously delighted just because superhero movies have, to a certain extent, a built-in audience. The really big news would be if Wonder Woman had pulled in $50 million domestically, if people had just rejected it in some sense. So... 
I think it's wonderful to see female directors hitting these benchmarks. I'm also really conscious that they're hitting them in franchises. So this is not Patty Jenkins getting to direct the movie of her dreams that sprung out of her head like Athena from the head of Zeus and making $100 million. This is her coming into a pre-existing franchise. On the other hand, she's coming into a pre-existing franchise that had been really floundering critically and managed to turn in the first, I think, sort of universally acclaimed entry in the series. And so she managed to make a really wonderful, lovely feminist movie that also made $100 million. So I think it's a reminder that obviously women can execute in this fairly well-developed formula. There is nothing that you know requires a penis to operate about superhero <laughs> movies. Um, but it's also a reminder that making a movie that is unabashedly feminist that has male characters who are are unthreatened by feminism and in fact enthusiastic about it is no obstacle to pulling in $100 million at the box office. So the idea that not just, you know, female superheroes can do incredibly well, but that superhero movies don't necessarily need to shy away from big ideas to make a lot of money. That's really heartening. Right. And you make a good point about this being a franchise because it, it is so. One of the things I found interesting, it, and I think there's other factors we have to sort of make from this as well. Because yes, it is a fr- franchise, but we also have other female-led superhero movies to sort of compare it to, um, and we can do that also cautiously. You have something like Catwoman, which <laughs> back in the day really floundered. I think it made maybe twenty k. Not twenty k, twenty million. Like it didn't make a ton of money. Um, same with Electra, which starred uh, Jennifer Garner. Both of those movies did really poorly. Um, but this is also these were in times before we had this. <clears throat> we had this DC Marvel competition going on in the way that we do now. Um, so the superhero world was very different. We were still kind of in the early phases. Um, the biggest ones I think back then were Spider Man and later the Dark Knight trilogy. So we also well, have the to X-Men that. movies as well. Oh right. I yes, mean the yes. X-Men movies, which have always had prominent female characters. I would say a big difference though is that superhero movies are effectively acting like long running, slow to release new episodes TV shows. So right. there's a sense that you can't miss a single installment. Um, characters who are in movies on their own, it's not necessarily the sense that you can skip that installment and just come back for the characters that you like. There is, I think, a strong learned sense among viewers that you have to see every single installment in the franchise if you want to actually understand what's going on, or at minimum, if you want to understand all of the character dynamics. So I think that there is built-in support for these movies the way there may not have been for a Catwoman movie or an Electra movie the way there was back in the day. I hope that that means that Marvel and DC get more daring and not more conservative as they make these choices in the future. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point to make and partially the reason why I had to have you on because you are way more into the superhero world than I am. Um, This is actually, you know, I've seen, I can probably count on two hands the number of superhero movies I've seen and three of them would be the Dark Knight trilogy. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's, you know, I'm not that steeped in that world. But I do kind of understand the way these things work. And with this movie, we have, like, I think the the anticipation in part is... it was it was hugely anticipated in a way that other films within the franchise have not been. Uh, the social media uh, 
push for this has been very explicitly feminist, as you mentioned, like the, you know, they had for Mother's Day, they tied it in. I think there's a hashtag going around for Mother's Day that connected your mother to Wonder Woman. And they've really just not shied away from it. Now, you know, what about this movie? Besides, obviously, this is a different time in the superhero genre. Like, what about this movie makes this different from Catwoman, Elektra, in the way it portrays the its female protagonists? I hope you won't hate me if I answer a different question, which is what makes it different from sort of superhero movies in general. I think that part of what distinguishes this movie is that it has a really light, warm tone. There are obviously serious issues. This is set during the trench warfare of World War One, so casualties are high, the conflict's really vicious. But this is a character who unlike a lot of these sort of morally compromised superheroes that we've spent time with in recent years, is, you know, an unabashed idealist, much more so than Captain America at this stage in his development. And it's as funny as a Guardians of the Galaxy movie without necessarily being sour or unpleasant. You know, this is Mm -hmm. a movie where someone gets to experience ice cream for the first time and it feels like a huge revelation and it's a passing joke, but it's a brief character moment. But you sense that lightness and sense of hope. And I think we haven't gotten that in superhero movies in a long time. It's a superhero movie that simultaneously you could take a child to because it's not just brutally violent, but it's much sexier than your average Marvel or DC superhero movie. It's a movie where actual adults talk about sex and then go to bed together. And so in a lot of ways it feels like... I don't want to say a Nancy Myers movie because the kitchens aren't that fabulous, but <laughs> it you know it feels like a movie that is genuinely a four quadrant movie in that it appeals to young people to you know you could be a sophisticated adult person and not feel like you were going to see just a comic book smash them up, um, but it's also you know it's appealing to men to women. It's I mean it's a superhero movie that wants to be a four-quadrant movie instead of being designed explicitly for 15-year-old boys with the expectation that the rest of the audience will just sort of come along. And I think as a reviewer, I, you know, I've consigned myself to writing about these movies for the rest of my natural life. (laughs) I'm I'm sure I'll find a way to survive. Being a critic is so hard. (laughs) But it is nice to see someone do things even on the margins that make it feel like innovation is happening in the genre. I mean, I, I, I caution myself always and anyone always against saying that, you know, women direct one way, men direct another. And and obviously, like you mentioned earlier, this is a movie in which there are, are so many different hands being like being passed. This film has been passed around through many different hands over the last 20 years since like I think it was first announced to be um, in the process of being made back in 96. So this is a long time coming. And obviously, Patty Jenkins is not the only person who had any input into the movie. But I mean, do you think that there is I get the sense that a lot of the 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 more nuanced, the 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 lighter touch, the and, and and the other parts that aren't so even just like explicitly feminist, probably it helped to have a woman in the director's chair. So, I mean, I think one thing to remember about superhero movies is that there is sort of an overall director who is the person responsible for shaping the plot of the movie, the tone. And then most of these movies have what's called a second unit director, the person who is responsible for the major action sequences. And the person who did that for Wonder Woman is the same person who did it for Man of Steel, for Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and who's doing it for Justice League, a guy named, uh, I think, Damon Caro. And you can see a real difference in the parts of the movie that 
come from the second unit and the parts of the movie that come from Jenkins. So Mm -hmm. the big final climactic fight sequence in Wonder Woman looks and feels a lot like the fight scenes in the other DC movies. There's a lot of sort of weightless action. There's not a clear sense of gravity. Objects and things get sort of thrown around as if there isn't a lot of mass to them. People manifest armor and other things. There's a very gray, sort of almost foggy tone to the movie. And that, to me, is sort of a hallmark, okay, that's what the DC Universe fight scenes look like because there is the common director sort of running through those, the second unit director. The rest of the movie feels just radically different from that. And not even just because it's, you know, fight scenes versus people talking about things. The rest of the movie is more brightly lit. The contrasts are sharper. The mood is lighter. There's much more room for humor. Um, There's not a, you know... This is not a movie where the conventional physics apply. Diana is a goddess. She flies through the air. Mm -hmm. But you can really sort of see that difference if you think about, okay, this is obviously done by the second unit director. This is what's coming from someone who is more interested in the character arcs and the plot. And I think in Jenkins' case, there is just that lighter sense of things. Now, the DC universe, I think, is more deeply engaged with certain big ideas in the Marvel universes, right? This is a universe where gods exist, where people debate what it means that actual gods exist. There are, you know, it's just a sort of, it's a weightier universe. I don't know that it's more effectively philosophical all the time, Mm -hmm. but the questions are a little bit bigger. And so you can see Wonder Woman taking on some of those big questions. This is a movie about a woman who later learns that she's a goddess, but she believes that there is this force causing war among humanity. It's her job to stop it. And then she has to deal with what happens when she finds out that it's not true. So there are sort of serious and lasting consequences there. And in the framework of the movie, we sort of understand that she's kind of quit being a hero after the experience of this movie. And, you know, even in tackling that question, Jenkins brings just a lot more optimism and brightness to those questions than Mm -hmm. Zack Snyder has previously. Yeah, I mean, I I think most of the reviews I saw, uh, they all pretty much agreed that while the rest of the movie was was very entertaining and very great and and innovative and innovative in the ways that you mentioned it's also the last third is very much just like all right we're going to do what every other dc comic movie has done let's let's throw some (laughs) tanks at each other exactly tanks don't weigh anything let's throw tanks at each other i mean i would say the one exception to that and that someone in my chat mentioned and that i really liked about the final action sequence was and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the movie Steve Trevor in the finale is he's up in the air with this plane that's full of German chemical weapons and he hesitates before doing what he has to do to destroy them. And it's not because he thinks the mission is wrong, but because he is experiencing genuine fear in that moment and there's a real sense of stakes. And I think that the movie is really wise to allow that moment of human emotion and trepidation, it makes what's happening seem real even amidst the weightlessness of everything else that's happening. Yeah. I want to move a little briefly to the way in which the media has sort of positioned this film and the way in which they position the the box office. And, you know, had this flopped, I can't help but think that we would have had a whole nother um, <clears throat> female Ghostbuster situation on our hands where we, like... This fails because I think they were similar in several ways. The fact that they both 
have very, very high expectations. Um, they they both were taking a well-known franchise, uh, an existing franchise, and and trying to do their own spin on it. Now, of course, female Ghostbusters is different because, again, it's female Ghostbusters, whereas we have Wonder Woman, who's always been a woman. Uh, or it's, it's always been portrayed by women. And you don't have, I don't think the fanboy service was nearly as pronounced at all um, when it when you compare it to what we had with Ghostbusters a months before the movie even coming out. You had trolls and then people like that. Whereas with Wonder Woman, it didn't really happen until the week like the week before it came out when you know Alamo Drafthouse decided to have those all-female uh, screenings for for Wonder Woman and a few people were not happy about that of course there's always some some men crying about these things um <laughs> but i mean had had it not failed um or had it failed i do wonder you know would we be pinning this like would we be blaming the fact that Either it had a female director behind the helm or the fact that, you know, the idea that superhero women do not sell. Um, and, you know, I, I do I, – I just wonder these questions because I'm seeing now in all of the media that, like, people are saying – they're writing, oh, well – you know, now we have now this is a great thing for women directors. It's like we're like it's going to prove that women can can make these films and sell. Um, but th- yes and no. I think it's good to have that example there. But then one film obviously is not going to fix these things. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes from there. I think it's a really complicated question. And one of the, one area where there was buzz prior to the movie, was there was some suggestion that DC wasn't putting as much money into advertising the movie. And I can understand how that would have been a concern for people. Like, people would have looked at that and said, DC is setting Wonder Wonder Woman up to fail. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a a surface level. I get the observation. You feel like there aren't as many ads on. One thing I think most people who follow movies casually aren't really aware of is that for a movie like this, the cost of... The advertising is often as much as the cost of the budget. So the reported budget for Wonder Woman is $100 million. If they were advertising it like Batman v Superman, I would have assumed that the advertising budget was also $100 million. Mm -hmm. That means that the threshold of profitability for the movie is not the stated $100 million budget, but $200 million. So Batman v Superman had, I think, a $250 million reported budget, probably had a $250 million advertising budget. So the threshold of profitability for that movie is $500 million. And so a huge advertising budget can be it can be a blessing if you think it's going to hugely boost the viewership for a movie. It can also be a curse if you think the viewership is kind of baked in or might be insured by good reviews and you're only making it harder for the movie to get to profitable. Now, I'm pretty sure Wonder Woman is profitable in its first weekend. I think it's up to something like $200 million internationally. Um, And the international market is increasingly important for American movie studios. So I think if Wonder Woman had flopped, there would have been a built-in narrative that DC hadn't really been behind it and hadn't committed the kind of advertising dollars required to make it a success. That said, now that it's a victory, the question becomes, you know, does Patty Jenkins get credit for it? Or is the assumption that, oh, it's Wonder Woman, there's been pent-up demand for the movie? Or, oh, the DC universe is relatively healthy after a couple of really critically panned movies. Yeah. To wrap this up, I think that we can't, we also just can't discount the fact that the reviews were also very positive, unlike previous 
outings with DC movies in particular, especially if you look at Suicide Squad and Batman versus Superman last year. So I think that, you know, that also is a huge thing because had the reviews not been good, I think that that would have hurt it in a way that it it wouldn't hurt something like Batman versus Superman. Well, and I also think... Not that I'm angling to be invited back, but an mm-hmm. an interesting thing to watch for Wonder Woman is going to be the extent to which the box office drops in the second weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, if it fell off a cliff, if it fell up by 75 or 80 percent, I would be really concerned. I think, though, that the reviews were good. I think word of mouth is going to be excellent. And I think people are going to see this movie for a second time. So I'm reasonably confident that the box office will hold particularly strongly, but that is sort of a second-order test for a movie. Is this something that people feel passionately enough about that they're going to tell other people and talk them into it? Do they feel passionately enough that they're going to buy a second ticket? And so if Wonder Woman is a movie that maybe doesn't pull in as much money as its superhero competitors on the first weekend, but holds much more strongly, that's a really good sign that people haven't just felt compelled to see the movie because it's part of this ongoing story, but they've seen it a second time because they genuinely want to. Yeah, and based on my very small anecdotal evidence, aka my Facebook social news feed, there are a lot of women I know who talked about crying during this movie, like crying happy tears. So I have a feeling that the word of mouth is going to be good on this one. And yeah, I hope we'll just have to wait and see what the second week box office looks like. And of course, Alyssa, you can come on at any time. We will have you on again, for sure. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was a total delight. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. And now for my conversation with Stella McGee, the filmmaker behind Everything Everything starring Amanda Stenberg, also known to many as Rue from The Hunger Games. So I don't know how many of my listeners are young adults or are in tune with the young adult genre. I, myself, am definitely not. If you are a young adult, holler at us. We'd love to know that you are listening. But here's a little bit of a quick recap. The film is based on the YA bestseller by Nicola Yoon and centers around Maddie, a teen suffering from a rare disease, severe combined immunodeficiency disorder, also known as SCID. Maddie has never stepped foot in the outside world because of it, and the only people she interacts with are her mother, played by Anika Noni Rose, her nurse, and the nurse's daughter. That is, until a cute boy named Ali, played by Nick Robinson, moves in next door with his family. Stella and I discussed how she made the jump from making her debut feature, a small, acclaimed indie, to helming a studio film showcasing a rising young star. We also talked about the story's major twist, which has drawn heat from some within the disabled community. We'll alert you to the spoiler right before it comes in the later part of the interview, in case you want to watch the movie, spoiler-free. Check it out. Well, welcome to the show, Stella. It is a pleasure to have you on Represent today to discuss your new film, Everything, Everything. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um in large part because you, in many ways, have had this very astonishing career trajectory. This is only your second feature film following your debut, Gene of the Joneses. Um, but it's also a studio film. Your first film was an independent film. Yes. And this never 
really hardly ever occurs for women filmmakers, let alone women of color, where they, you know, they make their first feature and then they get a studio film. It's usually a much slower process, unlike Mm -hmm. their male counterparts, particularly their Mm -hmm. white male counterparts. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a bit about how you broke into this business and what kind of led you on the path to working on Everything, Everything? Um, sure. Uh, I mean, I guess it seems fast, but it doesn't feel fast for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd written Gene of the Joneses a while ago, my first film, and um, finally got it made. Kind of, you know, I'm Canadian. I got some Canadian funding and, and TV One came on and I ended up getting Gene made last year and ended up at South by Southwest. And it was kind of a very, that's felt quick because I think I, I, I cut the, I, I was editing the film for like two weeks when I applied to, to South by and ended up getting in the, in the festival and, and was there a month later, really. Mm. Um, and, and we premiered at South by last year. Um, and, it was just very quickly after that I ended up signing with CAA and they sent me the script for Everything, Everything. And I really didn't read it for all the reasons you just mentioned. Like, I was just like, I don't think I'm about to jump into this, you know, studio film. It took me like, you know, seven years to get Gene made. Um, but I ended up reading it a few weeks later and, you know, read the book and read about Nicola Yoon and and just felt like I was a really good fit for it and was actually really surprised that MGM was making it. Um, and and I ended up, you know, pitching for it. And, you know, I think they just thought I was the right person for it. And, and I, like, I felt like I was the right person for it and ended up getting the job and then jumped into making the film really quickly, probably because Amanda had another film and she was going to have to shave her head. <laughs> so we we jumped in and, and, and made the film, you know, pretty quick after I got the job. Um, and then uh, Warner Brothers pulled it up and, and put it out. And so, you know, that's how you can end up having two films in one year. Yeah. You said that you were hesitant at first to take this this on because, in part, because it was a studio film. But, like, what what was sort of holding you back before you even read the, the book? I mean, I was still on, I guess, the festival circuit, really, with Gene. Um, and, you know, I was still thinking of myself more as a writer-director. And I had other projects that I'd written that I was trying to get financed. So I was really thinking of that and the next film I wanted to do that I'd written um, and and knew nothing about pitching the studio, you know, system. I'd done some TV, you know, projects that I'd sold, but I'd never really um, met on, on studio films. So it just, I don't know, it seemed at the time a little far-fetched before I really understood kind of Nicola and, and her movement and, and wanting to kind of jump on, on board. So... You know, I, I guess my mind was just somewhere else. I was still, I was still thinking about independent film and um, and 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 other films I wanted to do that that kind of came out of my own head. But I realized this was kind of an opportunity I probably shouldn't shouldn't pass up when I started reading about Nicola. You you've also said that you and Amanda kind of joked about the fact of everything, everything's existence and mm-hmm. your involvement. You've you've likened it to being sort of like a scam, a quote-unquote scam, you've <laughs> called it, as though you can't believe it's happened. And, oh, God. <laughs> and you know, I, I think it, it does that does say something about, because like you said, like, it's weird that this movie got made. Like, just mm-hmm. based, based on what we know about studios and the kinds of YA films that get major releases, they tend to not have 
you know, young women of color or young people of color in general as the at the forefront. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how did you sort of come to terms with this being like this is real? Like, did you talk to any? I know I know like it was already in the process. It was sent to you. Um, the script was for you to consider pitching. But like, did you afterwards talk to any execs or like ever figure out exactly like who who greenlit this movie exactly and like (laughs) how did it how did it come to be because it's just really this this small sort of YA novel that you know I know Mm -hmm. many teenagers really love but it's not like it was it's not like it was like a twilight or anything so I'm just curious sort of if you found anything out about like what what was the impetus for this I mean I don't know I mean it's such a weird story that's why me and Amanda would always just be like why are they making this? Like, this is the weirdest little romance, like, that, you know, is so, so specific. Like, it's very not, you know, doesn't necessarily, like, scream wide release movie, you know, even if it's been on the bestseller for a while. I mean, I don't know, you know, I John Glickman, the president of MGM, I think he's, like, a little bit of a risk taker, you know, and at, at a cost, <laughs> at a budget. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I, I I saw his daughter at the premiere and I laughed and said, maybe you're the reason this got made because his daughter loves the book. Like mm-hmm. it could, you know, I think it's, you know, between he just thought something could be made of it. And and when he found me and Amanda, I guess, just decided to take a chance on it. You know, it's not the biggest budget in the world. Um and and maybe the risk was was somewhat low, you know, to to make it. So I, I guess, you know, I just, I guess, you know, between me, Nicola, and Amanda, I think it was a, it was a good kind of connection and everybody jumped on board and just, you know, before we knew what we were making it. So I don't know. I give it to John Glickman, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the screening that I went to was packed with teenagers, young adults, and they loved it. <clears throat> the experience mm-hmm. was very similar. They're wild. <laughs> They're so wild. It, it, this experience is very similar to like when I saw Get Out earlier this year, mm-hmm. um, except like for very different reasons, obviously. <laughs> but yeah. like they were just as vocal, enthusiastic, uh, you know, when when moments happen, especially the flirting between Ollie and Maddie. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should come in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could do that. I like this room. Yeah. Um, my mom built it so that I could feel like I was outside. Does it work? Most days. The, the wounds of the were, yeah, the, they were, they were kind of off the charts. I wasn't expecting that at all. I yeah. mean, I'd be in the editing room being very touched by like <laughs> Amanda and Nick, you know, first kiss. And then you go to the theater and the kids are wild, you know, they're yeah. clapping and yelling and, you know, that's something that's a new audience for me. So that was, it's fun. It's like being at a party. Mm -hmm. What was it like? Because, you know, you're not a young adult anymore, not to say that you're old, but like (laughs) you're, you're not that target audience anymore. And so as a filmmaker, what was it like for you to sort of try and channel into that and tap into that? Because I know myself, I don't read much young adult fiction anymore. Mm -hmm. So getting into that world can be difficult for me. And I, I know that I can easily start judging the characters just from my own perspective. Right. Of you. So like, what was it like for you? Like, what were some of the hurdles you might have had to sort of overcome while directing this? Um, I mean, I had to get to know that audience, definitely, because, you know, my sensibilities aren't exactly aren't necessarily and what I write aren't haven't been this. Mm. So it was a bit of a process. I mean, I had a an earlier cut that was much longer 
kind of much more kind of beats of silence and um, quiet and thought and it scored higher with adult women and then lower with younger women. And you have to go back and think, okay, well, what what do they want and what do they react to? Mm -hmm. And, you know, learning to kind of trim it down and exchanging some of my more, I think, as Warner Brothers called it, sophisticated taste <laughs> for um, for for things that wouldn't make them, you know, fidgety and like want to check a phone in the middle of a scene. Mm -hmm. Um which I heard they are doing that anyway. If you check Snapchat, I'm sure you can catch a scene. But yeah, um, <laughs> there are a couple, <laughs> couple people in my screening who had to be told to turn their phones off. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's getting to know them because they it's a definite genre. You know, the movie we made, it's definitely in. I mean, which I didn't really even think of teen as a genre. And then you find out. I guess it is. And mm -hmm. kind of catering to that and the music that they'll like and the pacing that they'll want. And, um, you know, it's a little it's a little different than than my usual um, my usual writing um, or directing. So mm -hmm. um, I found them. But but it's it's rewarding, too, because they're so passionate. It's not, you know, like a sophisticated screening where people are like, you know, reviewing it in a certain way and comparing it to certain films like it's just all visceral for teens um and and that's something special too yeah was there any scene in particular you can recall that you had one way but then you know the studio came back and they said and eh, that you need to tone it down a bit or, or tweak it a bit in terms of how you address the the, the youth audience um I mean, there was some some music had to change just to kind of give it a younger feel. I feel like I thought I was young, but like <laughs> mid thirties is not nineteen or eight seventeen. <laughs> so, um, you know, some of the music changed a little, a little bit more pop, and I don't know. I mean, it was interesting doing the 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 sex scene because for me in my day to day writing, like I don't write sex scenes. And then for this, it was so important because it was her first time. Mm. So just like figuring out how much you could show or how much was too much, how was how much was too little. And then realizing like a, a 13 year old, no matter what is going to just giggle like through an entire kissing or scene with sex because they don't know how else to kind of react in public. And, right. um, you know, but knowing that that doesn't mean they're not enjoying what they're watching. Speaking of the sex scene, one thing that I did find surprising is that there was no there were no condoms in the sex scene. And I think if I recall correctly, in, in the book, there is a mention that they do use condoms. Was there mm -hmm. like was a studio against that or like what what was the deal with that? Because I just felt like. I don't know. Granted, back when I was a teenager, like all the big teen movies didn't address it back then. Like people right. just had sex. But like I feel like now filmmakers or, or movies, at least I think, probably try to throw in a like safe mm -hmm. sex thing. Was that something you <laughs> talked about or, you know, was that something I've ever brought up? Um, yeah, it was in the script. I think we shot um, Ollie getting buying condoms. Um but it didn't end up in the film. It just, it didn't, it, I don't know. You know, there's so much going on in this film already. She's about to die. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, 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 it was just like, plus having a safe sex message. It was just like yeah. too much. Like, it just, for me, was like not, not fitting. You know, it, the, the movie didn't feel grounded enough for us to put that in it. Like, basically, she's supposed to die being out in the world. Like, she's 
I don't know. Um, it so just she was, was just taking it, it risks just, anyway. Like. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I, I definitely don't want to send that message to young people um, watching the film, but right. um, it was just a, it was a lot. It was a lot of uh, themes to put into one scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> I, I hadn't really thought about it in that way in terms of, yeah, she was about to die. Uh, so <laughs> it's like, maybe it's not as She's important. She's taking some big risks, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, considering she had never been out of the world, Ollie himself also probably didn't have anything to worry about since, you know, mm-hmm. she probably doesn't have it. It, it happened. They <laughs> yeah. used it. We just, it was just off screen. Right, right. I mean, jumping back to sort of your creative input, because Nicola wrote the book, but the screenplay is actually adapted by J. Mills Goodlow, um, Mm -hmm. and he's a white guy. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to sort of, you know, how much creative input did you have in terms of, you know, the changes that were were made between both her version and the the screenwriting version in terms of bringing the story to life? Yeah, I mean, they had given, I had a, I guess, a second draft from Mills when I signed on. Um, and I think he did a pretty good job of, you know, breaking the structure and, you know, setting the story on its path. I did my polish before we shot. So, you know, I brought in a few more scenes from the book, you know, just tried to get as much of like a young voice in it as possible. And and I, and I added fantasy. Uh, the There's, you know, the scenes with the texting that becomes person to person in Maddie's uh, imagination. I added that as well so I could not have to shoot them texting each other. Mm-hmm. And was Ama- was Amanda already involved uh, in this in the movie once you got on board or did you have any say in casting her? Uh, yeah, I had say uh, when I came on, nobody was casted as yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I ended up meeting with Amanda uh, in L.A. for lunch and she ended up auditioning like she was in Paris and she like Skyped in and and we ran a few scenes and and we offered it to her pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. What what was it about her that made her perfect for the role? I this was actually my first time seeing her in a movie. I have mm-hmm. not, not seen any of the Hunger Games movies. Um, and <laughs> I was just struck by how just um, like she's just amazing in this role. Like she mm-hmm. her facial expressions and the way in which the camera sort of zooms in on her and lingers on her face and allows her to express these emotions even when she's not saying anything like she captures like this really great youthful like youthful energy but also like very mature energy that i thought was really great Uh, Mm -hmm. i mean that to me is maybe why you cast her but like what other reasons did you did you cast her (laughs) what did you what did you see in her um i mean i feel like she just had kind of like when she was auditioning she just had like the essence of what we were looking for you know she hasn't it's something interesting to her like she's beautiful and she's soft and she's smart but there's a little bit of a a danger to her too and a little i don't know like a little lolita to her as well and this is definitely a girl coming of age Mm -hmm. in this story yeah yeah you mentioned that sort of lolita the like not the little mischievous side of her and one of the things that um Verilyn, our producer, noticed uh, the big differences between the book and, and the film is that a manless character in the movie seems to have a lot more agency and in, mm-hmm. in, in small ways than she did in the book. And just moments like when Ollie and, and Maddie first meet in person mm-hmm. and 
Maddie like goes up to him and stands near him, even though, you know, she probably shouldn't for her own sake, for her health sake, or even just jumping off of the cliff when they're in Hawaii. Like mm-hmm. she has more agency. And was that something you talked about and something you were sort of uh, conscious of doing and, and portraying on screen? Yeah, definitely. Because I feel like, you know, especially on screen, if you're passive, it really it puts a damper on things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, not that she was completely passive in the book, but I think it was important in the movie for her to seem like she's really taking charge because this wasn't about a girl who, like, left her house just because of a guy, you know? Um, it's, it's a coming-of-age tale, too. So that was definitely something. It would be interesting, like, talking and editing and doing post and, like, you know, having long conversations about is it... If she should like, if it's a problem, if she like texts first or if Ollie texts her first. And it just seemed like such a old school conversation because I know girls, I believe they text guys. They shouldn't be texting first all the time. (laughs) Um, And so at any age. So it was, you know, those kind of conversations, they're interesting. I mean, go back and forth about um, what she should or shouldn't be doing. But. Um, I thought I thought it would more be more interesting on if she's the one kind of chasing him to kiss him to, um, you know, to 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 take take her shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are also these small touches that I notice, even though the film, much like the book, doesn't really deal too much with the fact that you know Maddie is black and Ali is white. Mm-hmm. There's really not much mention of it at all. But I did notice there were small touches in the way in which she acted, namely her hair. Mm -hmm. These like delicate touches of like the way in which she puts her hair up. And we see moments where she's just like either braiding it or putting it up or putting it down. Maybe it's just me being sensitive because I'm a black woman. But like Mm -hmm. I noticed those things. Were they... Were, am I imagining these things or were they also things that you were like, we, because this is sort of like, this is a black girl's experience and it's a black girl's yeah. experience we're not used to seeing. Like, how much did that factor into what you were talking about, even though it didn't necessarily end up explicitly on screen? Yeah, no, those were definitely well thought out moments between, you know, um, we don't talk about race in the movie. Um, the book doesn't really touch on it very much other than to describe her. Um, but it's it was important to kind of put those kind of silent moments are. So there are these moments of, of that we left in the film that, could, you know, on first cut could have been edited out of just her putting up her, the, the moments of putting up her hair and, and, and him watching her do it. And I mean, the, I mean, the way in which Nick even lays on top of her head and it's like, I'm like, we're like, wow, he doesn't say her hair is cool. You know, he doesn't (laughs) recoil from the, you know, the friction of the curl. Like, you know, it's like normalizing black beauty, you know, and 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 there's I mean, when you when he unzips her her the back of her dress and like the glow up is real, you know, like in 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 the color room, like like you know asking the colorist to just saturate her and 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 increase the glow and make her look as brown and as beautiful as possible and um there's definitely those moments that we try to find through the film that that bring attention um to to her being a young black girl without really explicitly talking about it i mean what do you make of i mean some people would argue that to not talk about it is a disservice to the fact that it is a thing. They are an, an mm-hmm. interracial couple. But, I mean, 
clearly that wasn't what you're going for, but do you think that there could have been room for something like that in a story like this? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't believe it's a disservice. So I, I've never thought about it like that. I mean, I feel like if you watch my first film, it's not explicitly about race, but it comes up um, in, as it would in casual conversation, you know, without making it a thematic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so no, I mean, for this particular thing, I definitely followed kind of the ethos of the book. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessary for you to explicitly be talking about blackness to serve it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I just noticed a lot, especially like you were mentioning earlier, this this sort of the way in which you framed her. There were a lot of like just close-ups of her and close-ups mm-hmm. of her skin that I think... It reminds me in a way of, you know, Queen Sugar, where we see a lot of close-ups of, like, black bodies and, and like, mm-hmm. shot in these very beautiful, gorgeous ways. And it's <clears throat> obviously that show is, like, more explicitly about race, but, like, even those moments aren't explicitly about race. It's just there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, obviously, yes, that is one way of of making it about race without making it about race, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like when Nicola first saw it, it was interesting because she called me and she was just like, I cried and cried and cried when like they were laying there. And it was just like the side of her, you know, her side, her like brown skin just filling up the entire screen. She's like, I just I just cried. And I was and I mean, that was that was it was nice to hear that because that's why she writes, you know, to represent people um, who look like her and her daughter and um, for a wide audience. And so it, it's nice. It, it's nice that people pick up on those things for sure. Mm-hmm. And the music, you really can't get away from the music. And I definitely, you know, fought for every single song because you really it, just like you don't get like a young girl like who looks like Amanda in the lead, you do not get a soundtrack like this for a teen wide release YA movie. See you at the bottom. I definitely um, looked up a couple of the songs from the the movie afterwards. (laughs) We also have the amazing Anika Noni Rose. We haven't even mentioned Mm -hmm. her yet, but she's playing the mother of of Maddie. I've been a huge fan of hers for many years. And Mm -hmm. there's a scene in which she's talking to uh, Maddie about Ali and what it feels like to, to like fall in love with him or at least like fall in like with him or be attracted to him yeah. and that scene wasn't wasn't in the book i don't think so no. what made you or you know all of you who were collaborating on this put that in there because it's it's very much a moment of like mother daughter having a conversation about something that the daughter supposedly will never be able to experience or can't experience right. so what was the impetus for that for that um scene yeah that was a scene i I rewrote that a, a few times before we shot it. Um, it's one of my favorite scenes, definitely, in the movie, and I, I, and Anika's for sure as well. Um, you know, it was like such a like a, the scene was long. I think the scene was like four pages, and 
it, it was just that moment for Maddie. For me, it was like, you know, I told Amanda, it was, this is your moment where you become a woman. This is where you tell your mother that you're kind of in love with a boy. And, um, uh, and, and, and Anika, you know, and how she reacts to kind of her daughter slipping away because she was like, Maddie's everything. And all of a sudden there's someone else in her life, you know, that means almost more to her in this moment. And it's like very bittersweet um, for for Anika's character to hear her say this um, because A, she's pulling away a little bit and growing up and um, and B, she can't be with him um, and she can't, you know, give her that. So... And and then and then it moves on to talk about their family. So mm-hmm. it, you know, I just I wanted to hit a lot of different notes. <laughs> there was a lot of different notes I wanted to hit in that scene, and and I think they both did a really beautiful job of 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 depicting kind of the progression of the relationship between a mother and daughter um, at a at a critical age. Yeah, I think also that scene sort of helps crystallize. A moment later, which if for anyone who's listening, I think it's probably safe to say that we should say that this is a huge spoiler. So if you haven't, <laughs> you haven't heard the book or if you haven't seen, seen it, it, leave now. <laughs> yeah, dip out. So that sort of crystallizes what we see later. We learn that <clears throat> that Maddie's mother, she's she's basically created the skid disease for her daughter, the severe combined immunodeficiency um, she has been lying about it her entire life. Uh, it turns out that she does not have skid. And the only reason she had that reaction in Hawaii when, during that trip is because, you know, she had been in a bubble essentially for her entire life and her uh, immune system was not used to it. So she wasn't going to die. She just like had a bad reaction, needs to get used to being out in the in the world. And Maddie's mother says, you know, the reason I did it was because I lost your brother and your father in an accident and I couldn't bear to leave, lose you either. So she had to control her in this way. And the movie and by proxy the book, because this is based off of the book, has been criticized for, you know, the portrayal of Skid by some people in the disabled community who have taken issue sort of with the idea that, you know, A, that it's it's a lie at the end and, and that she couldn't have died. So, you know, people within the community say that that sort of encourages the idea that, like, she's not disabled after all, so all is well. Um, and they feel misrepresented in a way. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious as to what, if you've heard those criticisms and what do you make of those criticisms about that very, um, to me, it was unexpected twist. Right. Uh, yeah, I've heard those criticisms. I mean, I've talked to, I talked to Nicola about it because, you know, she's dealt with it longer having written or heard heard the criticisms longer having written the book. Um and she said her answer is always like it's not the book and and the story is like not about a disease um so you know and for me when i was writing it this was very much a fable and um a little bit of a dark fairy tale so when i was adapting it i really didn't think about this as a specific um you know disease like i really was just in in broad terms like this girl had a rare immunodeficiency um and talking with doctors and asking them well what what would happen if this happened and what would happen if that happened and um you know it wasn't really in the realm of 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 having like that specific disease so 
you know, I, I really kind of took to it like like the advice Nicola gave me that this book was not about a disease, and and I was really more focused on 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 Maddie's coming of age. I think one of the things I've noticed from those who have criticized it is that it's tricky, right? Because it's you have this movie has so many. Um, anomalies in it. It has a woman, mm-hmm. a young woman of color, but it also has a woman of color who, for most of the movie, we believe has a disability or is, is does have mm-hmm. a disease. And so for women of color, especially who are in the audience and who think that they're seeing themselves and then at the end it turns out it's not her, like that's sort of where the disappointment seems to be coming from those who are, criti- who are criticizing it. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that makes sense to you at all, but like that's sort of... I don't want to speak for disabled people because I'm not a disabled person, but like that seems right. to be where it's coming from. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. I'm not, um, you know, I haven't lived with an immunodeficiency and, you know, I don't know what that's, what's that's particularly like. And, you know, I tried to adapt Nicola's book to the best of, of my ability and, and the spirit of, of how she portrayed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finally, I would love to ask you, what is the last film or TV show or anything pop culture that you have seen, watched, listened to, where you feel that you were represented in some way? You saw yourself in a character, in a plot, in a story, um, so long as you were not directly involved with it. So not everything, everything. (laughs) (laughs) Or Gina the Joneses. I mean, I just watched, I just binged master of none like everybody else probably mm-hmm. um and i i don't know i mean this first season was special the sex, second season i think was even more special and um you know just being kind of young and in search for love and place um the, you know i think that's i think it's it was it was like a beautiful beautiful season did you did you have a favorite episode from the second season cuz i completely agree i thought the second season was even better um yeah but everyone has their own favorite episode what was yours <sighs> um i mean the Lena Waithe episode was pretty amazing. The Thanksgiving episode, I thought, was hilarious and poignant and um, um, I, I, so specific and personal. And, you know, I just thought it was great. You know, it was it was really an awesome episode. But there was there was there was a lot of good episodes. I loved the first one. I wanted I wanted I, in my head after I watched the first one, he was going to like find that girl in like the Me last too. episode. I thought like, I so <laughs> thought that was going to happen. And I was so disappointed <laughs> when it didn't. <laughs> Aziz Ansari, if you're listening to this, like you should have brought her back because that Italian girl was selfish as hell. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And you should have brought her back. It, I, I just was assuming he was going to bump into her around some street corner in New York, as you do. Exactly. And and that it was going to be like the love of his life. So yeah. I will continue to hold out hope for season three. I am so glad you said that because I've been making the same thing and I feel like other people have tiptoed around that. But like I was really upset. Also, I feel like the way in which he tried to find her was kind of like, come on, we have so many other ways. Like he knew where she was going. Why didn't he just like yeah. 
take the train. I thought they were going to be. Yeah, I thought he was going to ride into, you know, southern Italy or wherever they were and and find her. I mean, he gave up too quick. But I mean, that was real. That's real. People give up, you know. It's true. I won't even cross the street to meet someone. So, like, (laughs) I can't expect him to, like, ride his bike to southern Italy. But, um, yeah, I I was holding out for that and it didn't happen. And I was I was I was a little I was a little sad. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Stella. Congratulations on everything, everything. And looking forward to seeing what else you do. And we'll be keeping an eye on you. Thanks so much. This was fun. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal... And when you gamble, betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And that's all for today. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Fairlyn Williams. Our social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Also, thoughts, suggestions, questions for us, just shoot us an email at represent at slate.com. We always love to hear from our listeners, and that's one great way for you to interact with us directly. Until next time. <laughs>